0: Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website and that is bigamateurism.com. And if you want to reach out to me, you can shoot me an email at cagerredux at gmail.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X at gmail.com. All right, today is January 8th, 2023. And in today's episode, I'm going to talk about the NCAA Division I Board of Directors Transformation Committee's final report. Boy, that's a mouthful, isn't it? I've talked quite a bit about this Transformation Committee, which followed up on the work of this Constitution Committee, what it all meant. And I've been following that Transformation Committee very closely. I have read all of the minutes that it has released. And I did a pretty good review of this final report and then some of the timing issues and some of the surrounding commentary related to the rollout of this final report. And it's really interesting stuff. And I guess I just want to say that the way I process this, and there's a ton of information here, there's no way that I could go through all of the issues that are raised in the fundamental tension and discrepancies between the the minutes of this committee's work, and then what came out in this final report. It, it's just, I can't find the adjectives to describe how fundamentally inconsistent this final report is with the work, the actual work that this committee did over a year. This committee was formed in October of 2021, after the summer of 2021, when the NCAA just crashed and burned on every initiative that was on its to-do list. And they lost the Austin case. They didn't get preemption in Congress. They were getting beaten up in the court of public opinion. Mark Emmert had just pissed off the United States Senate in ways that's just impossible to, to wrap your head around. And the NCAA was on fire as an institution. So what happened? The Power Five came in, and I argue more particularly the SEC came in, and finished off the job that they really uh, began in earnest in 2013, 2014 through this autonomy movement. And that is to essentially segregate the Power Five interest under the NCAA umbrella so that they could be left alone to do their own thing and keep all their football money and then give the basketball money to the NCAA and say, take this little slice of the overall pie and just be happy and shut the hell up and leave us alone. That's been the relationship. And this was an opportunity with the NCAA to point of historic weakness for the Power Five to come in and finish off some of the elements of the autonomy movement from 2013-14 that they did not get back then. And the most important part of that was infractions and enforcement, absolute control, over infractions and enforcement. They didn't want the NCAA button in on their business because they didn't trust the NCAA infractions and enforcement staff, and neither did a lot of other people who were paying attention to college sports at the time. So in August of 2021, after the NCAA just dumped all its nil garbage at the feet of the institutions on June 30th, a day before six state name, image, and likeness laws were set to go into effect. Bob Gates became the face of this makeover, and he announced the launch of the Constitution Committee, and they were going to align responsibilities and authorities and remake governance at the NCAA. And they came out with a Constitution. I've talked quite a bit about this, and I guess I should say, rather than going into all the details of this Constitution Committee and this Transformation Committee, I'm just going to give you some of the episodes that I did. I really did a series on this, and I think it's really important. If you really want to understand what is going on right now, you have to understand all these important pieces of the puzzle and what happened from the summer of 2021 into the fall of 2021 and then into 2022. Is really important in understanding where things sit right now from a regulatory standpoint. So let me just take a second to identify some of the episodes that I did. Let's see, in August of 2021, I did episode 50 titled "The Unbearable Lightness of NCAA Responsibilities," and then the next episode, episode 51, was titled "The NCAA's Limited Authorities Myth." And that those episodes were built around Bob Gates' initial framing of the issues for this Constitution Committee when he announced that and early August of 2021. And he said, look, the NCAA is in a battle for relevance and it has to align its responsibilities and its authorities. And that was a bit of a stretch as I just explained in those two episodes. And then as this constitution committee really began its work and they started to put out work product, and then we're heading into the fall and winter of 2021, and then into January of 2022 when the new constitution was ratified. I did a series of episodes uh, beginning, let's see, with episode 71, I titled that Committees, Omerdas, and Big Time Football Power Plays, and that was in November of 2021. And then I did several episodes devoted explicitly to what was in this constitution. I went draft by draft, article by article, provision by provision, and explained what was going on. And relevant to this transformation committee, which was formed in late October of 2021, along that timeline, I did episode number 78, titled The Division I Transformation Committee, the Power Five Claim the Iron Throne of College Sports Regulation. And then in January of 2022, after this constitution was ratified, I did episode 97, titled The New NCAA. Power Five Autonomy 2.0. And I go in detail comparing exactly how the Power Five explained to the NCAA what it was seeking in 2013, 2014 in autonomy. I laid that side by side with what happened through this Constitution Committee and then this Transformation Committee. And the themes and the substantive goals were virtually identical. It is really eerie how consistent these were. And I pointed out that Greg Sankey, who is in the middle of all of the transformation that's going on, and he's the Don, he's the the godfather of big time college sports now. I'm going to talk quite a bit about him in a little bit here in this episode. And as we know, Greg Sankey is the commissioner of the SEC and now is wearing so many hats, it's hard to keep up with. But back in 2013-14, Greg Sankey was the associate commissioner of the SEC. He is now the actual commissioner. And he was credited back then as being the brains behind this autonomy movement and the separation of power five football interests from the rest of the NCAA. And this is all a football show. And I've talked about that and its historical underpinnings. That is as true today as it was in 2013, 2014, this is a football show and it has an SEC flavor and this constitutional makeover and this transformation committee run through SEC interests, particularly the transformation committee. And Greg Sankey is the co-chair of the transformation committee along with Julie Cromer, who is an athletics director from a group of five school, kind of a junior varsity FBS conference and school. I'm going to talk about both of them here as we discuss what this final report looks like. And there are three important similarities between what happened with autonomy in 2013, 2014, and what's happened here in 2021 and 2022. First, you have both of these power plays wrapped up in dishonest concern for athletes' rights and athletes' interests. And it's all about improving the lives of student Athletes, and I'll go through some of the ridiculous provisions that they threw into this final report that they claim are new and important benefits for student athletes. But back in 2013 2014, the NCAA was reeling, it was under assault in federal court in the Obama case, it was under assault. In the Northwestern unionization attempt, it was getting beaten up for missteps in the infractions and enforcement process. They were just at a low point and the Power Five wanted to try to show the public that they really were serious about moving the big time college sports model into the 21st century. And they did what they do so well. They took what appeared to be catastrophe and they turned it into opportunity and a power grab. And I would say in comparing these two power grabs, at least in 2013, 2014, the athletes got something of tangible value. And that was the full cost of attendance scholarship. And I've talked quite a bit about that. And you have to remember that the NCAA had militantly opposed the full cost of attendance scholarship for years and years. And then in 2013, 2014, all of a sudden, that full cost of attendance scholarship seemed like the best thing since sliced bread. And it came with the federal judiciary's boot on the NCAA and the Power Five's throat because in O'Bannon, the name, image, and likeness case, one of the remedies for the NCAA's illegal anti-competitive limits on name, image, and likeness compensation was the full cost of attendance scholarship. And so that was on the table. And then all of a sudden, the Power Five come in and all their bravado and magnanimity, and boy, now it's the full cost of attendance scholarship. But that was a meaningful benefit. I think that was meaningful. The rest of those benefits really were not that helpful to the athletes. And they were things that people had been talking about for a long time because the NCAA's refusal to provide them was such an injustice, like enough food For athletes to be able to go to sleep at night without being hungry, the NCAA used to limit the amount of food that athletes could get, and that was one of the things that was included in autonomy. Taylor Branch, the civil rights historian who has commented on big-time college sports, he testified at a hearing in 2014, which really was the predicate for the autonomy public relations campaign, and Mark Emmert showed up to the Senate Commerce Committee trying to make the case for autonomy as a surrogate for the Power Five. There weren't any Power Five representatives there, no Power Five university presence. There's Mark Emmert carrying the Power Five's bags and as he was so good at doing. But at that hearing, Taylor Branch testified. And on these benefits, these new benefits that were supposed to come with autonomy, Branch characterized those as tips that a waiter might get. And that was a great way to to look at it. Nobody talked about these benefits in terms of what these athletes in big-time football and men's basketball were actually worth. It's what they didn't have before and what they got that they didn't have before really didn't rise to the level of more than tips that a waiter might get. With this transformation committee, the garbage that they've thrown in as new athlete benefits doesn't even rise to the level of a tip. And what's happening right now has an additional motivation, which really didn't exist in 2013 and 2014. And that is that the NCAA and the Power 5, the SEC and Greg Sankey and all their surrogates want so desperately to shut down the athletes' rights movement through protective federal legislation. That's all they can think about. They have had a monomaniacal focus on that. And From the very beginning of this constitutional makeover in the Transformation Committee, when the Democrats controlled the Senate, remember, we had that flip in the Senate in 2020, in the midterm cycle in 2020, in the Georgia special elections in 2021. So the NCAA and Power Five have been looking to the midterm elections from 2022, the ones that just occurred, praying for a Republican-controlled Senate, so that they could just steamroll through Congress a federal bill that would end the athletes' rights movement. So they've been in a time management game, and through the best lawyers, lobbyists, and public relations people on the planet, the NCAA and Power Five have had a pretty sophisticated clock management campaign, really going back to 2019. Where they were trying to get these three crucial federal protections and immunities. They wanted to eliminate states from the regulatory field through preemption, which would allow only the federal government to regulate in college sports for all intents and purposes. Second, they wanted absolute antitrust immunity that would take federal courts completely out of the regulatory field. And they wanted retroactive antitrust immunity as to name, image, and likeness to get rid of this house suit, which poses a huge financial threat to the NCAA. And the third thing, and this is the most unconscionable because all this was rolled up under the banner of name, image, and likeness. And this third thing has absolutely nothing to do with name, image, and likeness. And that was a declaration from Congress that athletes cannot, as a matter of federal law, be deemed employees of their institutions. And I've talked quite a bit about that, but that was designed in large measure to prevent athletes from organizing as laborers, because in order to form a union or have any rights under the National Labor Relations Act, you first have to establish that your employees in the NCAA and the Power Five have drawn that line in the sand and have militantly defended that no employee line. That's what this is all about. So when you look at the timing of this transformation committee's work, and the timeline that changed, it's morphed a little bit. Originally, they were going to have their work done by August of 2022. And then that stretched into January of 2023. Why is that important? Because that follows almost precisely the timeline for the midterm elections in 2022, and then the new Congress in 2023. So this transformation committee campaign is dissimilar from the autonomy movement in that it's not really designed to provide meaningful new benefits that are going to turn the pressure down from external regulators. It is a promise and delay campaign. It is promise all these wonderful things and this transformative change. And they just trotted that out and led everybody to believe through all this fluffy rhetoric that was running through their high-priced public relations firm, that they were really doing some important work here, and that simply was never the case. And now that the Power Five and the SEC have to find a new strategy in Congress, they have to just fold the tent on this transformation committee. They didn't get to the point they wanted to. The promise and delay campaign didn't take them to the Congress that they wanted. So this final report, in my judgment, is just a merciful death of a meaningless committee. But the reason I want to talk about it is that it is so important to understand how profoundly dishonest these people will be in order to disguise now what they're actually trying to do behind the scenes, because their campaign in Congress hasn't changed one iota. And one of the really important misleading features of this report is that it suggests that they are open to having a dialogue with stakeholders and with Congress where all options are on the table. And that is a big, fat lie. (laughs) I was going to add another adjective there. I had to hold my fire. And I've been pressed right to the profanity end of my vocabulary with all this garbage. And I'm going to talk about that a little more specifically when I talk about all the conflicts of interest that Sankey has and has had in his new role as the de facto czar of the voluntary regulation of college sports. So before I get into the substance of the report, I want to talk about another really important theme. And I've been talking about this throughout my blog. And into my podcasting, and I'm coming up on two, two years now with the podcast. And that is that to the public, there's this belief, because it's been propagandized by the NCAA and the Power Five and all their in-system megaphones, that there is some dis- intelligent discussion going on at the decision-making level among in-system stakeholders like university presidents, like conference commissioners, like college athletes like governing boards at the NCAA and all these ridiculous committees that they are sitting down and having intelligent discussions about the current state of college sports and the future of college sports, and that they are the true decision makers. And I have said from the very beginning that that is a mirage who's really running college sports right now. Lobbyists, lawyers, public relations spin doctors, and broadcast media companies. That's it. And that reality is reflected in the work of this transformation committee. So this is a perfect case study in how this, all this kabuki theater about these committees and these governing boards having these thoughtful discussions, that got exposed in the work of this transformation committee. And I want to go through and explain exactly how that happened. So for context and timing, the new constitution was ratified on January 20th of twenty. 22. And the initial vague charge of this Transformation Committee was to make transformational changes to Division I consistent with the new principles and priorities of the Constitution. So they began their work. Really in January of 2022, and they had their very first meeting on January 25th of 2022, and then their work continued through, or at least their meetings continued through to December 6th of 2022. And in between, they had weekly meetings not quite weekly, but they had a good number of meetings. I think it was around 35 ish, but that first meeting was pro forma. The first substantive meeting that this committee had was on, and I'm flipping pages here, so I apologize. My dog-eared, tabbed, and highlighted set of minutes. But that was really on February 1st of 2022. And there were a couple of very important things that happened. One was that the Transformation Committee said that it was going to be looking to the NCAA's Infractions Process Committee to help it form its thinking on infractions and enforcement. And that was one of the primary points of emphasis throughout the Transformation Committee's work. There was very little about that in the final report. And I think the reason for that is that by relying on this Infractions Process Committee, The Transformation Committee was committee-washing Greg Sankey's conflicts of interest because Greg Sankey sits on the Infractions Process Committee. It's a seven-member committee. He's the most important person and most powerful person in college sports, so he's going to get whatever the hell he wants out of that committee. And then they were sending... Recommendations to the Transformation Committee without acknowledging that conflict of interest or that Greg Sankey was essentially making recommendations to himself. I mean, it's just breathtaking what they were getting away with here. But that was the very first order of business. So on these February 1st, 2022 minutes, there are three items one, meaningful solutions to infractions and enforcement issues. Then there was a conversation on current events. And then number three, that has gotten zero attention in the media. And again, this is one of the first items of business for this transformation committee. And it says comprehensive communications plan. The transformation committee received an update from Bully Pulpit Interactive regarding the comprehensive communications plan developed to support the work of the transformation committee. And I've talked a little bit about Bully Pulpit Interactive. I'm going to call them BPI. They are one of Washington, D.C.'s most powerful and influential public relations spin doctors and they have a big megaphone and they are politically connected. They are comprised largely of leftovers from the Obama campaign and the Biden campaign. They have a very left-leaning focus, kind of a woke focus. And they know how to get down into the trenches and propagandize these very complicated issues that spin around power and race and gender, and all the things that the NCAA has used as immunity shields or attack weapons to try to get what they want from Congress. And this component of their campaign for the Iron Throne of College Sports Regulation is devoted exclusively to how they are perceived. That is the first item of business. What does that tell you? What does that tell you about the motives of this transformation committee? Their first order of business is to make sure that they can effectively Gaslight the American public and all stakeholders about what really is going on behind the scenes in the regulation of college sports and the future of college sports. And that is a campaign to end the athletes' rights movement. And Bully Pulpit Interactive is right there running interference for them. Bully Pulpit has been working for the NCAA since 2015 ish. And according to the NCAA's 990 nonprofit tax returns, Bully Pulpit. Interactive Inc., BPI, has been paid at least $40 million since 2015 to make the NCAA and now the Power Five look like they are acting consistent with American values when the exact opposite is the case. And I guess you need talented people like BPI to try to pull off that kind of public charade. So the straight talk express, Greg Sankey and Julie Kromler from the very beginning. They've just turned over the messaging to the experts. And I think that's reflected in this final report. I'm going to talk a little bit about how it was structured when I get to the report itself. And it's really interesting, but it has BPI all over it. And some of the themes that they really hammered were identical to the themes that Linda Livingstone and Charlie Baker rolled out when he was announced as the new NCAA president. They're identical. All right. So we have public relations, spin doctors, check now let's go to attorneys and we don't have to wait long to get to this because at the very next meeting or meetings, it says uh, 7th and 8th. So I guess there was a two-day session. And on the agenda, there are only four items and we have the first discussion of these sacred Student-Athlete Benefits and Support. And here is what that entry says. The Transformation Committee received a privileged and confidential presentation from outside legal counsel that will serve as a foundation for discussions related to modernizing the collegiate sports model and improving student-athlete support throughout the division. The very first reference to these athlete benefits that they put front and center in this final report runs through the lawyers. And the reason that any discussion about additional athlete benefits is gonna run through the lawyers and later the lobbyists, as I'm gonna explain, but initially through the lawyers is that the NCAA doesn't wanna do a damn thing on meaningful additional benefits unless and until they get absolute federal protections and immunities that would allow them to do nothing. And we're back to the very problem we had with the voluntary rules changes on name, image, and likeness. NCAA was putting that out as a carrot, and it became a Trojan horse for a justification to go into Congress to ask for these three important protections and immunities that would end the athletes' rights movement. They had no intention of changing any rules voluntarily on name, image, and likeness. And remember, The NCAA came up with this ridiculous excuse for not following through on voluntary rulemaking, which they have been promising since 2019. They suspended their nil rulemaking just before the January NCAA convention in 2021 because they said that the Department of Justice was telling them that there were some antitrust issues with the way that they had put together their name, image, and likeness legislation. And that was a ruse. That was a dishonest ruse. And the head of the antitrust division at that time, who was communicating with Mark Emmert, said so in a podcast interview. He said that the NCAA's suggestion that the Department of Justice had instructed them to stand down on voluntary nil rulemaking was false. But the NCAA brazenly put it out there, and they're still putting out that propaganda. They're still falling back on that crutch about why they didn't follow through and what they said they were going to do. And the true reason that they didn't do anything on voluntary rulemaking with NIL is that they thought they were going to get absolute antitrust immunity in the Austin case, which was headed towards the Supreme Court. And then they also were trying behind the scenes to get all these federal protections and immunities from Congress. And the Justice Department lawyer Said that outright. The way he put it was they wanted to get a free shot into the goal with Austin. So they stopped their voluntary rulemaking, told the athletes, up yours in the NCAA bureaucracy speak. And then we're just sitting back, hoping that the United States Supreme Court was going to place them literally above the law when it came to our free competition laws. And the same thing is happening right now. The NCAA and Power Five are trying to extend their promise and delay campaign, but not do anything. Because they don't really want to do anything on additional athlete benefits. All they want is the absolute authority to be able to do whatever they want to, including nothing on benefits, without any accountability or responsibility. And that's also the reason that when I go through these quote-unquote benefits that are identified in the final report, They're nothing more than rehashed benefits that already exist and there's a suggestion that they may be augmented, but there's nothing there. There's no there there in those recommendations. I'm going to use two examples to explain how thin those new benefits are. I'm going to talk about this mental health benefit that they've been championing. And then also I want to talk about this degree completion program they put out there. They're suggesting that both of those things are new. They are not even close to being new. All right. So now we've got the public relations people on board. Now we have the lawyers on board. And I'll just say this, that that cryptic explanation of athlete benefits is pretty much the form that you see throughout the minutes. There is very little discussion about these specific things that they threw into this final report. And I went through and just tabbed all of the references under this heading uh, throughout the minutes on the, let's say what do they call it? Uh, student athlete benefits and support. They, they throw that into most of the minutes, not all of them. There are a good number of minutes where they don't even talk about athlete benefits and support. But when they do talk about it, they talk about it in very terse terms. And then beginning in March in their cut and paste references to student-athlete benefits and financial support, they toss in a reference to Austin and they say, The Transformation Committee continued its exploration of potential options for student-athlete benefit and support models in the post-Austin environment. Discussions focused on support to student-athletes as well as possible minimum standards for Division I membership. The committee will revisit the issue during its next meeting on Tuesday, March 8th. What the hell is the post-Austin environment? What do they mean by that? And what influence does it have on their provision of student-athlete benefits and financial support? We don't know. And they use that tactic of kicking the issue down the road, kicking the can down the road. And we're going to talk about that at the next meeting. But that basic template is just repeated when they talk about student-athlete benefits. And then in October, pressing fast forward to October, an interesting change occurs in their discussion about student-athlete benefits. In the minutes dated October 26th and 27th, the bullet point on student-athlete support and benefits says this. The Transformation Committee continued its review of potential student-athlete benefit models, noting the important connection between student-athlete benefits and the work of the NCAA Board of Governors Subcommittee on Congressional Engagement And action. And the reason that we haven't heard about this until October is that it follows the announcement in early August that the new NCAA Board of Governors was formed. Linda Livingstone was announced as the new Board of Governors Chair. And in connection with that announcement, they also announced the first two actions of the new Board of Governors. One was the formation of a subcommittee on the new president, the Presidential Search Subcommittee, essentially. And then the second subcommittee that was formed was this NCAA Board of Governors Subcommittee on Congressional Engagement and Action. And guess who is on that committee? None other than Greg Sankey. And there is not a suggestion of that in this final report. So what's the importance of the Subcommittee on Congressional Engagement and Action? It's that now we have the lobbyists involved. And the way that they pitch this subcommittee in the final report is just really slippery. So let me first describe how this committee is characterized in the NCAA press release that came out on August 2nd with the announcement of the new Board of Governors. It says, the board also appointed a subcommittee on congressional engagement and action to provide guidance to the board on what actions the association should take to seek congressional partnership in addressing legislative issues. Partnership. This is all a collaborative Effort. And then they talk about how this is important for the athletes and all that happy malarkey. And then they say specifically, the committee will identify the association's specific congressional legislative needs and priorities that best support student athletes participating in all divisions at its 1,100 member schools and develop and implement a strategic plan to effectively communicate and engage Congress about the association's legislative priorities and key areas of ongoing support. Now I wanna add how Greg Sankey and Julie Cromer in a testimonial in the final report of this transformation committee, talk about this subcommittee on congressional engagement. And they say this, in the vast majority of those cases, as it pertains to issues such as name, image, and likeness standards, the employment status of student-athletes, and the unique interests of student-athletes in the highest revenue-generating athletics programs, this stems from legal and other uncertainties. The NCAA is prepared and eager to engage on these issues. There's no question that finding fair, sustainable, and equitable resolutions to each issue will be essential to Division I's future. We simply need a clear, stable framework under which to address them. Congress is the only entity that can grant that stability. Since the next phase of the NCAA transformation will hinge on these issues, the NCAA has initiated and established a Board of Governors subcommittee on congressional engagement. The subcommittee will now take responsibility for the advancement of the unfinished pieces of the Transformation Committee's work where the NCAA currently lacks the ability to self-impose changes on its own. The subcommittee will also lead the NCAA's strategy for engaging, motivating, and collaborating with Congress over the coming year. There are so many aspects of those two statements that are just misleading as they can be, but the thing they have in common is this suggestion that the NCAA and the Power Five and Division One are... Just looking for ways to engage Congress. No, they engaged Congress in 2019, and they don't have to form a committee to deliberate about what they want from Congress. They know exactly what they want because it's contained in the lobbying disclosure reports for the lobbyists that are working for the NCAA and for the Power Five and the Southeastern Conference. And it's also contained in the legislation that has been proposed since June of 2020 by Republican senators, NCAA-friendly senators, that include all three of what I call these death provisions, the preemption provision, the antitrust immunity provision, and the athletes can't be employees provision. That's what they're asking for. They don't breathe a word of that. They identify those as issues, but they pretend that they do not know how they want to engage Congress. And that flies in the face of documentary evidence to the contrary. And the other thing about this presentation in the final report. And again, this comes under the name of Sankey and Cromer. This is their personal statement on how they see the work of this transformation committee. They throw in this description of this new Board of Governors subcommittee on congressional engagement, but they don't disclose that Greg Sankey is on that committee. So whatever recommendations are coming from this Board of Governors subcommittee, are going to be made to the transformation committee that Greg Sankey co-chairs. It's another instance where he is making recommendations to himself. This is a closed loop of a very small group of decision makers. And I'll just note that on this new and small board of governors, it only has nine members, and you have Jerry Moorhead of Georgia, Linda Livingstone of Baylor, Randy Woodson of NC State, all three of them are on this transformation committee. They're making recommendations to themselves and passing it off in this final report as if there is truly independent thinking and decision-making that's going into their engagement with Congress. They don't have to think because they know what their engagement is. It's the same engagement that they have had since 2019 and it's built around these three extraordinary federal protections and immunities the engagement with Congress isn't going to run through the, this subcommittee. And Greg Sankey and the seven other members, or eight members on this subcommittee. It's going to run through the NCAA and Power 5 lobbyists and how they want to manipulate Congress. And they've been working around the clock since 2019. And I've talked quite a bit about the lobbying campaign and I don't know how many lobbying firms. There are seven or eight lobbying firms across the NCAA and the Power Five, including Brownstein Hyatt, who lobbies for the NCAA. And they are the number one ranked lobbying firm in Washington, D.C. And so they have the best lobbyists going to bat for them. So we have the lobbyists taken over. So in all this garbage that the Transformation Committee threw into this final report, the fact of the matter is that from the very beginning, their messaging, was controlled by a public relations firm, a spin doctor company. Their discussion about athlete benefits was defined from the very beginning around advice, confidential and privileged advice from outside counsel. And then their discussion about what they want from Congress going forward is running through their lobbyists. These spin doctors and lawyers and lobbyists are the best in the business and the NCAA and the Power Five and the Transformation Committee have spared no expense to make sure that they have the best people that they can find running college sports. That's what's happening here. And I think that's really the important takeaway from this report. It's all smoke and mirrors, and it is designed to hide the fact that these people haven't decided a damn thing. The public relations people have, the lawyers have the lobbyists have, and that's how it's going to be going forward. And I just want to talk a little bit more about the many hats that Greg Sankey wears and where he actually falls on these issues. These issues have been presented in the final report as if they are open issues, open questions. They are not. And Greg Sankey knows that. But you have to ask yourself, when you look at this report, who's Greg Sankey representing? Is it the SEC's interests is it the NCAA's interests? Is it Division I's interests? Is it the Transformation Committee's interest? The Infraction Process Committee's interests? The Board of Governors Subcommittee on Congressional Engagement and Action? Those interests? What interests is Greg Sankey representing? And I don't think, particularly when it comes to his role as the commissioner of the SEC, and then these new roles that he has in the NCAA governance and committee structure, I don't think that you can wear all of those hats at the same time. And there's no discussion about that. There's no disclosure of that. Nobody in the media is asking those questions. And I think that just speaks to the sad state of media more broadly. This isn't just a sports media issue, but it was interesting in the rollout. I was going to talk quite a bit about this, but I don't want to waste a lot of time on it. But in the rollout of this final report, the NCAA had sent a preview to a reporter who's among the small group of reporters that we always hear about when the NCAA wants to get its propaganda out into the public domain. Uh, But I think there was some narrative washing going on here because what you heard from the media, and it started with an AP reporter, then that story was picked up by ESPN verbatim and it wasn't until later on January 3rd that the NCAA first put anything out on its website. How does that happen? It can only happen if there's coordination with those news outlets that wrote about it earlier in the day. And what did this journalist put out on uh, through the Associated Press? A headline that had very little to do with the actual work of this committee. There was some discussion about expanding national championships and... That's not going to happen without a lot of discussion behind the scenes. But the headline of this article that set the narrative, because it was the first article out through the NCAA's narrative launderers, it says NCAA recommendations call for bigger championship events. And then that headline was repeated verbatim in ESPN. And that was the storyline in subsequent stories. Why is that important? Because that grabs attention, even though it is unlikely, even though it wasn't the focus, a a primary focus of this transformation committee's work. They knew that this would grab headlines. And what does that do? It diverts attention from the profound misdirection that's contained in this final report and the fact that this committee has done virtually nothing for the athletes. They are buying time and they're back into promise and delay. And they are back to Congress, Congress, Congress. And if the Power Five and the NCAA get what they want from Congress, all of these discussions are irrelevant because the NCAA and the Power Five will be able to do whatever the hell they want to do without any fear of any repercussions or any liability or any second-guessing. They will sit on the iron throne of college sports regulation and be un touchable. But the other thing that's interesting about this false headline is that some of the things that the transformation committee talked about really should lie in the board of governors' lap. So this transformation committee was the creature of the division 1 Board of Directors, not the NCAA Board of Governors. And under the new constitution, the Board of Governors still retains primary responsibility for national championships. So why aren't we hearing from the Board of Governors? Not that it would matter because Linda Livingstone, who's the chair of the new Board of Governors, also sits on the transformation committee. Again, this small group of Powerful decision makers that operate like a star chamber, but there was no suggestion about what the transformation committee's jurisdiction was. And they're issuing edicts. They were also talking about a new revenue distribution formula. They were talking about trying to find some way to get some money to lower-level division one who might struggle to pay for some of these new things that are in uh, the final report. I don't think that's going to be a big issue. But then you also had a discussion about changing. The allocations to divisions two and and three, and how in the world can the division one board of directors speak to that? That is an association wide issue, but here they are forming policy on what what little is left of the association's authorities under this new constitution, and that is just evidence to me, a further evidence that this is a power five takeover, and, and uh, more specifically an, an SEC takeover, and they don't give a damn what the association thinks. And there really can't be much difference because you have so much crossover representation between the new Board of Governors and this transformation committee. It is kabuki theater. And I think it's so important to note that Greg Sankey has portrayed himself as this neutral observer, as if he personally, or the institutions that he has represented and all the hats that he has worn, hasn't taken a clear position on the, the specific substantive issues That go to congressional intervention and the future of college sports and the fundamental relationship between the athletes that provide the value and the revenue in this enterprise and the institutions who are benefiting from it and the people just like Greg Sankey who are benefiting from it. And Sankey's position on these issues isn't difficult to ascertain. It's hiding in plain sight. And where can you find it? Well, first of all, you just go to the NCAA and the Power Five lobbyist reports and the SEC's lobbying reports and the bills that those lobbyists are supporting and the bills that they are opposing. And the bill that most of these lobbyists have latched onto is Jerry Moran's bill that he put out in February of 2021 that would end the athletes' rights movement. It has the three death provisions in it. And on the backside of that Moran bill, it's all over for the athletes. And then they oppose the Athletes' Bill of Rights. Greg Sankey knows that. Then we also have the notes from the Power Fives meeting in December of 2019 on the very front edge of their offensive campaign in Congress to get these federal protections and immunities under the banner of name, image, and likeness. And the Power Five power brokers held this secret meeting to lay out their blueprint for their campaign in Congress. And so you had all Power Five university presidents attending that meeting. You had all the Power Five conference commissioners you had the head of the NCAA Board of Governors, Michael Drake, former Ohio State president and at the time the chair of the Board of Governors. And then you had a couple of other ancillary people. There were a total of 15 people. And this is the smoke-filled room. And we only know about this because Andy Wittry, a blogger, got this document somehow. I don't know if it was through a public records request, but Greg Sankey was at that meeting. Jerry Moorhead was at that meeting. And in that meeting, they made quite clear that they wanted to pursue federal legislation that would end the athletes rights movement. And they also talked about the messaging, how important the messaging was, how important the propaganda was. And they were really concerned about Mark Emmert's leadership because he was pissing people off in Congress left and right. And they really wanted to push him to the side. And remember, this is in 2019, but (laughs) that's not how Mark Emmert rolls. He just uh, threw himself and his ego at Congress. And I think that was a good thing ultimately for the athletes because I think if somebody else had been the messenger other than Emmert, maybe the NCAA and Power Five get uh, favorable protective federal legislation before the flip in the Senate while the Republicans controlled the Congress in 2020. But Greg Sankey knew exactly what he wanted. And from the very beginning, he knew exactly what he wanted. And then we had the uh, Power Five Conference Commissioners' joint letter to Congress on May 23rd, 2020. And in that letter, all five Power Five Conference Commissioners, including Greg Sankey, laid out their case independent of the NCAA for why they needed all of these federal protections and immunities, preemption of state laws, absolute antitrust immunity, and athletes can't be employees. And they asked the leaders in both chambers to press the gas. They said, time is of the essence. Time is of the essence. Greg Sankey knew exactly what he wanted, as did the other Power Five conference commissioners, and they boldly asked for it. And then we also had you know, Sankey's ongoing public pro- uh, propaganda campaign against athletes' rights. And if you listen to any of his conversations on on Paul Feinbaum's show, for example. You know, you, you get the same talking points. And then, of course, we had Greg Sankey testifying in the Senate in July of 2020. And he sat behind a microphone after raising his right hand to testify before the Senate. And he said without any equivocation and with the certitude of an evangelical preacher that if athletes became employees, it would be the end of college sports. And he was there to support the NCAA and Power Five's legislative campaign to get the three death p- provisions to kill the athletes' rights movement. And then you've had Sankey joining in with the new SEC voices, such as Nick Saban, and then senators from SEC states, such as Roger Wicker, Republican from Mississippi, Tommy Tuberville, Republican from Alabama, to make the case that this name, image, and likeness market's out of control, the Wild West, and we've got to put the genie back in the bottle. And the only way that's going to happen is through protective federal legislation. And then most recently, the SEC filed a friend of the court brief in this Johnson case that I've talked quite a bit about, and that is the case that is now in the Third Circuit. And the sole question that's been presented to the Third Circuit on an interlocutory appeal, a special appeal to get this single issue addressed is whether or not athletes can be employees under the Fair Labor Standards Act. And the defendants are a number of schools and then the NCAA. The SEC is not a defendant, but they marched in and they filed a friend of the court brief to make clear that they will fight to the death this line in the sand they've drawn, that athletes cannot be employees. So all of these things make quite clear to anyone who's paying attention that we know exactly how Greg Sankey feels about all these issues and the suggestion that he just wants to just put these issues on the table for the first time and talk about this in a productive way for the benefit of student athletes is, is ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. And I guess I should throw in too that They had one of these uh, video press conferences, just like they did with the rollout of Charlie Baker as NCAA president. And it was as comical as the Baker rollout. And Cromer and Sankey offered their speeches, and then they had questions from a small group of reporters. And the very first person asking questions was the guy who wrote the very first article on the Transformation Committee's final report. But where were these reporters asking some of these basic questions? I mean, these are the questions that just leap off the pages of this report if you've been paying attention. And these are smart journalists. They they know these issues. They know where Greg Sankey stands. But this was a dog and pony show. And that's part of the problem here. And that goes to really to, to the heart of the challenge that the athletes face in trying to get their message on the table. They are fighting, not just the the school's and the conferences and the NCAA and the broadcast media companies, they're fighting the the media, not just the sports media, but the mainstream media. And they have bought hook, Klein and sinker into the NCAA and the Power Five, now the SECs, and Greg Sankey's BS. So let me talk a little bit about this final report. First, let me just talk about how Bully Pulpit Interactive put this thing together and it's clear that this is the work of a public relations firm because it reads like a public relations publication. And so they, they use this testimonial approach. And so they have five testimonials or five people providing testimonials. They start with Jerry Moorhead, who is the president of the University of Georgia. He's head of the Division I Board of Directors. He sits on the NCAA Board of Governors. And his hand is in almost all of the pies in the governance structure and the committee structure. He is one of the most powerful people. He may be the most powerful person in college sports regulation right now, along with Greg Sankey. And he is loyal to SEC interests, but he has this kind of flowery thing. And this sounds almost identical to the speech that Charlie Baker gave in the rollout of of the announcement that he was going to be the new NCAA president. And it's just full of sky is falling narratives. And he talks about the need for national uniformity on name, image, and likeness. And he makes a pitch for congressional intervention. He says, in recent years, court challenges and state legislatures have dramatically changed the landscape for college sports. Suddenly, The NCAA's authority to apply consistent rules to schools across the country has been thoroughly strained. Suddenly, this is just some set of external forces who have come in to take over college sports, and the NCAA and the Power Five couldn't have seen this coming. He uses this technique, or Bully Pulpit used this technique of talking about how beloved college sports are, how they are a cultural jewel, and it's so important that we preserve them. And in that messaging, as I pointed out when I talked about Baker's uh, presentation, there's an us versus them component to that narrative. And then we have the testimonials from Greg Sankey and Julie Crummer. It's a a joint testimonial. Actually, they offer two, one kind of early on here to set the framework. And then at the very end, they offer another testimonial in which they talk about the need for congressional intervention. That comes at the very end. It was not at the... The very beginning, but it's just as flowery and just as misleading as the one that we uh, saw from uh, President Moorhead. And it's all talking points and all the wonderful things they're doing for athletes. Uh, And then the third testimonial comes from, and this may be my favorite, comes from a gentleman named Kendall Spencer, who's identified as an attorney, member of the Division One Transformation Committee, and former track and field athlete at the University of New Mexico. And it is just an encomium to his role as the spokesperson for student athletes. And I just want to talk about that for a second because Spencer is one stop shopping for the NCAA and Power Five because he's a reliable propagandist. And he's been portrayed as a student athlete representative. He is the only person on this 21-member transformation committee that has that designation. They don't have any true legitimate current or recently graduated student athletes. In fact, Mr. Spencer is, what, 31 years old? And I just want to point out, they've used him in, in a variety of capacities. He was one of the first witnesses to testify in Congress in 2020. He was at that February 11th hearing. And he has gone on speeches about the beauties of amateurism and the student-athlete. He's also a member of the Knight Commission, which is joined at the hip with the NCAA in many ways. They sometimes have little spats and little disagreements, but you have extraordinary crossover there. And a lot of the people on the Knight Commission now have held high-level governance positions at the NCAA. So, So in terms of true athlete representation. I just want to point something out from this new constitution that was ratified in January of 2022. And it talks about these new student representation positions on the new board of governors. There are going to be three students or former students, one who is a voting member of the board of governors and then two ex-officio members. And when they talk about those seats, they uh, say this, One graduated student-athlete who shall have graduated not more than four years prior to appointment. And then they talk about these two other seats, ex-officio seats. One former NCAA student-athlete from each of the two divisions, not represented by the student-athlete voting member of the board, who shall have graduated not more than four years prior to appointment. What's the purpose of that? They want to try to capture, at least symbolically, The experience of current student athletes, and they want to have voices that are connected to the experience of current student athletes. And I just want to say that while the NCAA and the Power Five and the Constitution Committee, because Mr. Spencer also sat on the Constitution Committee, and he's the sole, quote unquote, athlete representative on the Transformation Committee, they have ignored their own rules. Mr. Spencer, under these qualification criteria for the board of governors, would be so far removed from his uh, college experience. I think he graduated in 2014, so we're going on a decade out from his college experience, and he he simply wouldn't be permitted to sit on an existing NCAA board as a student athlete representative. So, what the hell is he doing on the transformation committee? And the answer is. He is a reliable foot soldier for the NCAA and Power Five and SEC propagandists. And that's exactly what you get here in this piece. Uh, And on that athlete representation issue, i also point out that when Greg Sankey was making his opening comments in this ridiculous press conference, he was so quick to point out, and so was Julie Cromer, that they relied heavily on input from student-athletes, and Sankey specifically referenced Mr. Spencer as the voice of the student-athletes, and then also the Student-Athlete Advisory Committee, which I've talked a bit about, this uh, national-level board. It is the only athlete representation body that the NCAA recognizes. They won't talk to anybody else. They want all their stuff to run through committees that they have absolute iron-fisted control over. And in this final report, they talk about trying to enhance the voice of the Student Athlete Advisory Committee. And I don't see it that way. I I see the NCAA as increasing their oversight and stranglehold over those committees at the conference and institutional level so that you don't have any athletes going rogue. That's the way these NCAA Power Five decision makers think about the student voice. And I guess I also point out on that issue of the student athlete voice, that in the minutes of the Transformation Committee from May 17th of 2022, this was a video conference meeting, there was discussion about a membership engagement survey that had been sent out in April. And the minutes say this, the NCAA Division I Transformation Committee received an overview of the results from the membership survey that was distributed following the April 21st Transformation Committee webinar. A total of 666 campus and conference administrators, coach, and affiliate organization representatives completed the survey. The survey included requests for feedback on big picture issues and on more specific concepts in the areas of transfers and fractions and rules modernization. There was general support for almost all the concepts that the Transformation Committee included in the survey. As the Transformation Committee finalizes concepts in the relevant areas, it will continue to review and consider the detailed survey feedback in each specific area, especially in those areas with less consensus. And then the final bullet point on this survey is this. The Transformation Committee noted the limited engagement of student-athletes in this survey and committed to engaging student-athletes more broadly as concepts are being finalized, particularly in areas that directly impact student-athletes. So what does that tell you? That tells you that they didn't try too damn hard to get some student-athlete feedback outside of Mr. Spencer and outside of the, I think, 30 members of this national SAC committee. And yet in this final report, they have the temerity to beat their chest and talk about how important the student-athlete voice was in formulating these recommendations and then getting them through to the final report. How can you do that? At that point, if you really feel like you haven't had broad-based student-athlete input and the response rate to that survey was low, and we don't get the numbers on the response rate, But if that's the case, then you stop and you say there's something wrong with our process. We are not reaching these athletes and we're not going to continue our work until we make sure that we have enough athletes engaged in this discussion so that they understand the issues and the recommendations that we make can truly be aligned with the interests of these people that they're holding up as the primary beneficiary of the committee's work. That didn't happen. Why not? And then the next testimonial comes from a woman named Linda Teeler, who is a senior women's athletics administrator, the SWA, from the University of Florida. Guess what conference the University of Florida is in? S-E-C. And Ms. Teeler has been brought off the bench really to do the work that Shane Lyons had been doing. I talked in that episode about the five most important NCAA insiders. Shane Lyons, the former athletics director from West Virginia, was serving in that role. And he was head of the Division I Council. And he was on all these boards with, with the other four members. And he got fired by the uh, West Virginia president. And so they brought in Ms. Teeler. And she is now the head of the Division I Council. And now she is a primary spokesperson on this transformation committee. And she's gonna talk about the Division One Championship experience for student-athletes, and it is just full of some really nice propaganda. And then the final testimonial comes from a gentleman named Pat Chun, who is the Athletics Director at Washington State, and his assigned topic apparently is infractions and enforcement. There's a very brief discussion about that, and it's really the, the last item here. It's not prioritized, which again, is so misleading because infractions and enforcement was at the very top of the list from the very beginning of this Transformation Committee's work. And when you look over the body of this Transformation Committee's work, you read through all of the minutes, you synthesize the recurring themes and the pace, of these meetings, you can see that the only truly specific recommendations where you get the fine print and you get the kind of language that could be legislation ready if the NCAA wanted to fold those recommendations into actual legislation, that exists with respect to only three topics. And the first, and I think the one that got the most priority, was infractions and enforcement. And that's reflected by the Very first set of minutes in the first substantive meeting where it was infraction process committee right out of the blocks and those recommendations going to the transformation committee. Again, Sankey reporting to Sankey, but that wasn't disclosed. And then you had uh, recruiting recommendations that had very specific, very purposeful recommendations that could just be plug and play in a piece of NCAA legislation. And then the third thing were transfer rules. And the language wasn't quite as specific on that, but their policy making and their thinking about policy making was really a priority in that uh, transfer discussion. So those were the three areas of priority. And Mr. Chun has been put out as the face of infractions and enforcement, which I've just find so ironic given the way that the formation of this committee kind of marginalized the Pac-12. And you don't hear anything from a Big Ten representative. I think there's, there was only one, maybe, who was an athletics director at the University of Maryland you know, not a bread and butter Big Ten school. And Maryland's kind of an outlier in the footprint and the climate and culture. But you you have this coming from somebody other than Greg Sankey, and that's so important. But Greg Sankey knows more about the infractions and enforcement process than anybody in college sports, because he has been at ground zero behind the scenes, shaping what that process looks like. But Mr. Chun is the face of this, and he has another flowery presentation. But what's interesting about that, so you have five people who are really presented as the face of this final report, and three of them are from the SEC. How does that happen? And I talked about the membership of that committee back in in those episodes on the Constitution Committee and then this Transformation Committee, and it is top-heavy with SEC, ACC, Big 12 interests. And it is very, very thin on Pac-12 and Big 10 interests. And I, I don't think that's coincidental. And I think that when you look at the overall body of work and the way that this thing was rolled out, I believe that there's probably some pushback behind the scenes. And I hope that there's been some discussion about whether this work product is truly representative. And again, I don't think there's much there there, but the the process and and the voices run primarily through SEC interests. And you got Greg Sankey reporting to himself on two crucial issues, the remake of infractions and enforcement, and then the future of college sports through congressional intervention. And that's Greg Sankey, start to finish. No disclosure of that in this final report. I've got so much more to talk about. I'm looking at the time here. And so I think I'm gonna roll this discussion over to the next episode. And I'm gonna talk about the quote unquote substance of this report and its specific recommendations and uh, break those down and and just expose them for, what they are. So with that, I'm going to close this thing out. I want to thank you for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.